Father in heaven, we come before you this morning eager to seek you and eager to ask for your help today to talk about the issues before us. I pray that you'll give us ears to hear, a heart that is teachable and a willing mind to understand what it is you would have to have us to know and do and believe. Thank you for the greatness of your word. You tell us in Psalm 138 too that you have exalted your word above your name. You've given us a sacred trust. And so, Lord, it's our desire this morning to come and to guard it, to defend it, and to proclaim it. We need your strength. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, from time to time in the life of the church, it becomes necessary to depart from the normal exposition of the word, where we might move through a book or a series, verse by verse, in order this morning to address an issue that's facing the church. The elders of Calvary have decided that we take a couple of weeks and to address an important issue confronting you and confronting all of Christianity specifically. And speaking for the leadership here at Calvary, we take the issue of shepherding you very seriously. It's a matter that we give an account to the Lord for. Uh, With regard to shepherding, we find ourselves in the position of having one day to answer to the Lord Jesus Christ and having a massive burden to carry a treasured heaviness that constantly lives on our minds and and follows our conscience. And shepherding really has a multiplicity of facets to it, best illustrated by the shepherd and the use of his rod and his staff. The rod of a shepherd was a was a two fit two foot blunt uh, instrument. It was a it was a cylinder that had a five inch head on it, and with it it, it functioned for the shepherd like a billy club. Uh, he could use it to beat animals who were attacking the flock, uh, and he could use it sometimes to like a like a like a slingshot to throw it within an inch of uh, the spot that he aimed for to maybe nudge or or spook a sheep back into the fold. It was his priority to make sure that the sheep were protected. And so he used this rod very carefully. You see David wielding the rod in, in 1 Samuel, killing a bear and a lion. It was a, it was a deadly instrument in the hand of, a, hand of a shepherd, or it was an encouraging one. The staff, which you're more familiar with, was stood at the height of the shepherd. It, most of them had a crook at the top. And the shepherd could usually use his staff to rescue sheep that had fallen from a pit. Where he might not be able to reach, he could stick his crook down there and pull a sheep out. He could steady himself maybe when he was crossing an area where he was traversing and the the ground was unstable, or he could hold his sheep as they were crossing that ground and keep them in line from slipping and falling. He could lean on it for rest when he became weary or he became tired. And like the rod, he could defend himself or his flock against enemies that assailed him. The rod and the staff are are a comforting and an assuring thing to the sheep. If they see a shepherd with a rod in one hand and the staff in the other hand, they know that things are well. And it's the rod and the staff that I would like to wield this morning for your own protection and for your own reassurance about the truth. Now, as I said, watchmen give an account. And we, as your watchmen, have the responsibility to answer one day to the Lord Jesus Christ about different issues that face you as a church. And so in the fear of him, we come to exhort you and to protect you this morning about an issue with regard to... Uh, to something you must be warned about. Now realize that as we do this, it's not our desire to attack a certain person or to, or to criticize a ministry that somebody might hold, though we have to refer at certain times to certain individuals. The scriptures command us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 20, to examine everything carefully and hold fast to what is good. 
We have the responsibility, and so do you, to any issue that confronts the church and faces people to, to look at it and to turn around and to examine it very carefully, and if there's anything wrong, to point it out. And having said that, it appears to us that what has been a growing and gathering threat to the church is now a clear and present danger that we can't ignore. The issue about which I'm speaking is psychology. The word itself comes from the marriage of two words, psyche, meaning the soul, and ology, which is the study of something. That sounds easy enough, doesn't it? The study of the soul. But you asked the question this morning that I want to raise, who is qualified to speak about the soul? And who is qualified to render a proper diagnosis so as to discern why man does what he does? Why does he behave the way that he does? And moreover, who is qualified to supply an answer and a solution to how he can change? The kind of solution that is permanent. The kind of solution that is lasting. The kind of solution that provides a change within. And one of the reasons that we as a leadership have been alarmed about psychology is it be, because it, it attempts to provide answers for which the Bible claims to be sufficient. There are issues that psychology claims to be the answer for where the Bible says, no, I alone are the answer. I alone am the answer. And to look beyond God and to look beyond his resources in order to deal with the issues of life that he claims sufficiency in is to undermine his glory and to cut ourselves off from answers and solutions But I thought what maybe we would do this morning as we begin our series is to sort of retrace and define and give you the the basic beliefs of psychology and then provide an evaluation. It would be helpful, I think, to begin with an understanding that psychology began as a secular pursuit. Man attempting to help fellow man make sense of life and pursue fulfillment, key in, apart from the supernatural, apart from the spiritual elements within the universe. If we were to define psychology... We might, generally speaking, define it this way. Robert Feldman gives probably one of the most accepted definitions. Psychology is the scientific study of a behavior and mental processes. Behavior, he says, encompasses not just what people do, but their thoughts and their feelings and their perceptions, their reasonings, their memory and biological activities. So psychology does claim to be able to deal with the internal faculties as well as the external. Moving beyond the realm of physiological, we're dealing with the realm of the internal and even the spiritual, the mental. Though generally all psychologists would basically agree on the definition I gave you, there's really not a consistency, though, in the application of these principles. In fact, in the United States alone, there are between 250 and 300 different schools of thought alone in the United States. What that means is depending on who you go to uh, and then depending on where they were instructed, you got a 1 in 300 chance of maybe finding something that's right, someone who can address your issue. Finding secular psychologists who agree on principle and methodology alone will be difficult. And you say, well, okay, well, why the diversity? Why is there 300 different angles that, and, and schools of thought with regard to this discipline? I think perhaps understanding its origin and history might be helpful. If you were to trace the roots of of psychology, you would find that it goes all the way back to 525 B.C. in the Egyptian and Mesopotamian regions where certain religions such as animism or Buddhism or Zen Buddhism uh, and all the way through have, have practices that find themselves today in modern disciplines of psychology. Psychology really before the 1800s stayed in the realm of the religious and the philosophical. It never touched the realm of the scientific until the birth of one movement spawned by a man named Charles Darwin. The movement, as you know, is evolution. 
Charles Darwin held that emotions in man were inherited in an evolutionary sense, reflecting the emotional behavior that served the survival of lower animal species. Animal species. It is notable that Sigmund Freud formulated his theories about the unconscious from presuppositions of Darwin evolution. And so what you have here is a man, namely Charles Darwin, who believed that man was on the top end of this evolving animal-type approach to life. We all uh, crawled out of sludge, and we have to understand life in that perspective. Everyone that's contributed to the work of understanding man with an evolutionary worldview had their, fo- had their findings formulated really by, by four key leading men. And I want to take a little time and, and identify them for you. Four main psychologists, Sigmund Freud, Carl Gustav Jung, B.F. Skinner, and Carl Rogers. Now, beginning with Sigmund Freud, uh, he's probably most known for his uh, development of psychoanalysis. He developed what's called free association to allow the material that is repressed in your unconscious to emerge in conscious recognition. In other words, you have certain things in your life that are suppressed, that are unknown to you, that are causing the trauma in your life. And if you can unearth those things and you can deal with those things in the conscious level, you can move on to growth and to to happiness. And so our lives are to release that material and deal with them. One of the ways that's dealt with today, uh, one of the most uh, uh, extreme examples is a case of a person who was told by their psychologist that the reason for the trauma they're facing in their life is because as an egg, they were trapped in the fallopian tubes. And I think, how do you know that, right? But being trapped in the fallopian tubes, what you have to do now as an empowered individual is go way, way back to that event and now empowered breakthrough the fallopian barrier. And so what they'll have the patient do is lie on the ground and squirm and squirm and squirm until they feel that they're free. And then the session is over, you pay your bill, and then you move on to greater happiness and living. Now, this is ridiculous. And it's, and, it's, and it's postured by Freud, whose religious convictions were as follows. Freud, in his book, The Future of an Illusion, says, Religion is comparable to a childhood neurosis. He goes on, While the different religions wrangle with one another as to which of them is in possession of the truth, in our view, the truth of religion may be altogether disregarded. Religion is an attempt to get control over the sensory world in which we are placed by means of the wish world which we have developed inside us as a result of biological and psychological necessities. In other words, the trauma we face in our life has forced us to create a religion that allows us to accommodate. He goes on, but it, that is religion, cannot achieve its end. Its doctrines carry with them the stamp of the times in which they originated, the ignorant childhood days of the human race. Its consolations deserve no trust. Experience teaches us that the world is not a nursery. The ethical commands to which religion seeks to lend its weight require some other foundations instead. For human society cannot do without them, and it is dangerous to link up obedience to them with religious belief. Freud says, if one attempts to assign to religion its place in man's evolution, it seems not so much to be lasting acquisition as a parallel to the neurosis which the civilized individual must pass through on his way from childhood to maturity. In other words, if you, every single one of you here this morning who claims to know Jesus Christ, who claims that the true religion of the Bible is yours and all that you need, you're an infant. You need to move beyond this and progress into maturity. 
Carl Gustav Jung, the founder of analytical psychology, said, religious mythology is possibly a solution for mental problems. He, he one up Freud and says, if you have a problem uh, mentally, religion is a good thing because it'll help you break free, free from your mental illness, even though it's an illusion. They wouldn't say it's a delusion. They would say it's an illusion. It's something that helps you. If it helps you, that's fine. But really, it's preventing you from maturity. He also believed that the unconscious mind shares a collective unconsciousness and wisdom of ancestral experience passed down from prior generations. In other words, your great-great-great-great-grandfather, if he had some trauma suppressed in his unconscious, now it's yours. Bummer. The baggage your ancestors have is now yours and are contributing to the problems in your life. What's not commonly known about Jung is that he had a personal spirit god, or at least he claimed to have a personal spirit guide who he named Philemon that navigated him through a series of visions and dreams that now postulated his theories of psychoanalysis. Let him talk to dead people. And apparently he claimed that dead people talk back to him. B.F. Skinner a man who's also one of these four founders, viewed man in his mind from the perspective of a circuit box. A circuit box that contains the collection of stimulus response connections. Believing this, this is what led him to his conclusion. Man has no purpose or significance and there is no soul. The reason he, the way that he viewed man was a soulless being. Something he took from Darwin. And something that Freud and all the others believed. And so what he said then is that if you want to change a person, you, all you have to aim for is behavior modification. All you have to do is manipulate his environment and manipulate his circumstances and you can control his destiny. Carl Rogers believed that man had everything within himself to deal with life. He's quoted as saying, it is doubtful with regard to the presence of a universal truth out there. And he happened to be more skeptical that we could even know if a truth exists at all. There is no truth. Later on, he embraced the occult by engaging in necromancy, kind of like uh, Jung, the practice of communicating with the spirits of the dead people in order to predict the future. Now, what's more alarming than these are the founders is that The foundation of psychology is colored with a worldview that taints their practice, the practice that appears in modern psychological textbooks today. The rise of psychology as we know it today has been recognized as a scientific discipline. But it's interesting that it came at a very interesting point in the time of history of the world, mid to late 1800s, in a movement called modernism. Now, modernism simply was a movement throughout the world that suggested that man is able to find answers to life in his higher learning. And from within. Featured in modernism is the departure from anything supernatural. In fact, if you were going to talk on the levels that academians were talking on, you had to remove the religious or the spiritual or the supernatural from your conversation. The thinkers of the day weren't pastors. They weren't theologians. They were people like Marx and Nietzsche and Freud, etc. This led to an inevitable takeover of the university and colleges by secularism, moving the religious discussions out of the university and into the dining room dinner table. The institutions of higher learning remove religion from the public discourse. And at the same time that this was happening, another significant and influential development occurred in the history of the West. The application of sciences, once applied to biology, once applied to astronomy and physics and chemistry, took the same principles and applied them to human ambition trying to measure values in a laboratory, 
In fact, in Germany, the first laboratory was established in the 1800s to try to get their arms around some sort of, of understanding about why man thinks the way he does, taking the, the same principles used to apply to the material world and putting them on a person and answering, why does he do what he does? A person who has no soul. A person who is another animal. You're not a lab rat. You're not measured like a lab rat. And so four underlying assumptions really pervaded their thinking. Number one, they assumed that religion and science were mutually exclusive. You can't talk about science and have any, anything in the equation that is religious. In other words, God and the Bible can be left out of the discussion because religion is incompatible with science. Their second assumption was the immaterial part of man, your soul, your inner man, can be examined with the same laws that govern the rest of the world. The subjective, your desires, your values, your motives can be measured by objective criteria, by the scientific method. Third, the answer to man and his reasonings and the inworking of his soul are not sufficiently given in the Bible or in religion. You can't, if you're going to talk about a biblical diagnosis of a man, you are simplistic, they would say. If you're going to understand yourself and how you relate to the world around you, you must look beyond God. And fourth, man is another animal. Man is just another animal. Studies on monkeys and birds and rats and other species who don't have souls, they say, could render conclusions about man who's just more sophisticated. But we can't accept that because man made in the image of God does have a soul. And he can't be examined like a bird. And so with the rise of modernism, you have this, this drumbeat that's, that's sounding louder and louder and it's beginning to become deafening. And true biblical sanity is hardly heard. And so with the rise of modernism came the birth of evolution and the examination of a man without reference to his soul. And so the bottom line thinking of the day, you have to understand this historically, was that we must understand life in a world where there is no God. That is the, that is the presupposition and from that point, universities just became drunk with this. Inebriated universities staggering to find truth unable because they had rejected the truth of God. Psychology sat in judgment in the scriptures, and actually religion became a subset study of psychology. You want to study something about religion? You went to a major university, you studied psychology. And you think, where's the church while all this is going on? What is happening in the life of the church? Well, historically, the church took a passive role. Instead of engaging the culture, instead of speaking and crying out, they moved away. They said, well, we're not going to concentrate on that because that's distracting us. We want to focus on the gospel, which is a good thing. And so you have a, a modern mission movement driving a wonderful, a wonderful movement driving an emphasis on evangelism, a, a wonderful um, uh, move back towards the true and saving gospel to the exclusion of the study of the soul's health. The church was consumed with evangelism and missions, but when it came to studying behavior and issues like sanctification, the church wasn't talking. The liberals were talking. And so instead of engaging the culture, the, the church moved away from these universities, they abandoned them, and they started Bible colleges. That's why Bible colleges exist today. The history of Bible colleges is because psychology uh, forced Christianity out of the classroom, and so... Christians decided to establish their own institutions where they would concentrate on evangelism and other things. But after World War II, the church started to readdress once again the issues of the soul. 
But by this time, the only resident authority on the soul were the liberals. And so dialogue, I hate that word. We need to dialogue. That means we're going to compromise. And we can't compromise. And so a dialogue began where, where they would sit down and they would negotiate and work through the issues of, of psychology and the health of the soul. And so Christians began to accept psychology as having the answers. And psychologists began to be converted to Christ. And so then it was the best of both worlds, a marriage between Christianity and psychology. And so Christian psychology was born. Now, if you, were wanna, if you wanted to try to wrap yourself around maybe what, what the basic belief systems of a, of a psychologist are, it's a very difficult task. I spent months and months looking through, wading through material, and nobody agrees on anything. It's very hard to, to wrap your arms around a movement. It's like nailing jello to the wall. It, you, as soon as you, or maybe like a waterbed, as soon as you think you got it, another end pops up over here. You know, you, you, it's very difficult to try to wrap your arms around this movement, which is a very subtle ploy of the enemy, I, enemy, I believe. Because if you can pervade the culture with a movement that you can't critique, it runs unchecked. And so what you had happen then is a whole proliferation of people trying to, and it's an ever-evolving discipline in science, people trying to define and make sense out of life in this world. And I think one of the reasons they can't find a conclusion is because they're, chasing down the wrong road. You won't find a single manual on psychology. You can find science textbooks. You can find psychology uh, classroom textbooks. But the approach to text is not here are the basic tenets of psychology. Here are the different schools of thought. And they try to give you the major ones and let you choose from there. But in general, if we would sum up the basic tenets of psychology, we might say something like this. Man is an evolved animal of the highest form, born with a neutral or sometimes good disposition, and is influenced to become the person he or she is because of the environmental factors in his life. Moreover, and this is depending on who you ask, man can find answers to life's questions in himself and in his surroundings and is accountable to no one else except the culture in which he lives. There is no accountability, there is no authority except what the norms of culture impose on it. So we're going to speak more fully about the belief system in a minute. But I think the biggest issue facing the church today is psychology's scientific claims. Here's where the battle rages. Is psychology a legitimate science? Now science, according to the Academic Press Dictionary of Science Technology, says, Science is the systematic observation of natural events and conditions in order to discover facts about them and to formulate laws and principles based on these facts. Simple enough, we look at the world, we try to discern what's true, and we make them facts. Number two, it's also the organized body of knowledge that is derived from such observations and that can be verified and tested by further investigation. Okay, that's fair. If that's the definition of science, then we have to ask the question, does psychology offer verifiable proof that it indeed is a scientific discipline? legitimizing its right to speak authoritatively on the matters of the soul or not? Is psychology indeed an interpretation of the facts? And for this, let's go to the horse's mouth. Let's ask the psychologists themselves, do you believe that your own movement carries with it the authority you claim and is verifiably objective? Psychologist Roger Mills says, the field of psychology today is literally a mess. There are as many techniques, methods, and theories around as there are researchers and therapists. 
I have personally seen therapists convince their clients that all their problems come from their mothers, their stars, their biochemical makeup, their diet, their lifestyle, and even their karma. Jonas Robichger says, The psychiatrist's advice is followed simply because he's a psychiatrist, even though the scientific validity of his advice and recommendations have never been firmly established. Their insistence that they are scientific and correct and that their detractors, therefore, must be wrong. Karl Popper says, Psychological theories of human behavior, though posing as sciences, have in fact more in common with primitive myths than they do with science. They resemble astrology rather than astronomy myths. They contain the most interesting psychological suggestions, but not in testable form. In other words, to make sense of all that, what they're saying is, They carry the weight of authority, but nobody has any conclusions that are verifiable and testable. The U.S. Congress Office of Technology Assessment of the United States in 1992 published a report titled The Biology of Mental Disorders. The report concludes at the end, research has yet to identify specific biological causes for any psychological disorder. In a psychopathology textbook used for second-year medical students, the authors state, psychiatry is the only medical specialty that treats disorders without clearly known causes. Peter Bregan, MD, 1997, formerly a teaching fellow at Harvard Medical School and full-time consultant with the National Institute of Mental Health, said in his work, Brain Disabling Treatments in Psychiatry, declares there are no known biochemical imbalances in the brain of typical psychiatric patients. In other words, this whole chemical imbalance model is completely unlegitimized. William Wershing, 1999, a research and professor of psychiatry at UCLA, stated in a room full of psychiatrists, quote, we have been lying to everyone for years concerning the chemical imbalance model. No one in the room challenged him, and nobody questioned him. In an article approved for the continuing education by the American Psychiatric Association, the author states, we don't know how psychotropic medications really work. All the stuff about Ritalin, all this stuff about all of these Prozac and all of the things that are being given out in massive dosages to people, they say we don't know how they work. Dr. Ty Colbert, president of the Center for Psychological Alternatives to Biopsychiatry, says, Believe it or not, it is freely admitted within the ranks of psychiatry that no conclusive evidence exists to show that any form of mental illness is biologically caused. This doesn't speak well to the internal consistency of secular psychology. The people within the movement don't even trust it. Let's do something. Let's evaluate it pragmatically. Let's let's take a common sense analysis of psychology just based on what we've said so far. And if you're taking notes and want a sort of an outline to hang your thoughts on, this might be one. Psychology offers no consistency or authority. No consistency or authority. Psychologists don't even agree on the source of the problems. They certainly can't agree on the solutions in dealing with man's issues and with such a diversity of opinions. Who's right? I mean, I don't know about you, but uh, I drive the freeway. And if there were 250 to 300 different schools of thought with regard to driving, 250 different kinds of licenses you could get all with their own independent rules, 
Not a chance. How'd you like to fly in uh, to Burbank where, where, depending on the guy who's in the tower, he's maybe trained in one of 250 to 300 different schools of, you know, whatever that is. Somebody tell me so second service I can get it right. There's no clear authority. There's no clear consistency. Has anybody got the answer? Is anybody even close? Well, their statistics and admissions would indicate otherwise. Psychology is a house divided against itself. And you're not going to hear psychologists admit this. Most psychologists will discuss how this is an authority. This is an authority issue. They have found the answer. This is the pill that you need. And yet, there's nothing to commend it. For example, let me give you some specifics here. We've been kind of technical. The chemical imbalance model, which is probably the most, right at the center of the debate today is a perfect example. Millions and millions of people are receiving medication to deal with, quote, chemical problems when the top researchers and scholars quoted above freely admit they're simply making guesswork. Some of them even say, we're lying. The greatest embarrassment to the the psychiatric community is the dispensing of the chemical lithium to deal with such issues as manic depression, bipolar disorder. Patients are told that if you are suffering from one of these different labels, that the reason you're facing what you are is because tests reveal you have a low lithium count in your body. And so what you need is lithium to take and that you will equalize and stabilize your levels and you'll be able to function in a healthy way. You'll feel better. His lithium level is low. And you know what? The the psychiatrist is right. His lithium level is low because... Nowhere ever in the human body is lithium ever produced. My lithium level's low. And so is yours. Everybody's is. There, it's zero. And so here, take a lithium pill. Your lithium is low. And people, okay, I'll take it. I feel better. And you have a people who are living now conditioned on the basis of how they feel versus what is verifiably true. And so if you... See, and you say, well, why do they give them lithium? I mean, that's kind of deceptive, isn't it? Well, yes, it is. But this is what happens. There is no way, by the way, for you to measure. You have to, you have to penetrate the skull with a syringe to even try to get some level of, uh, of discernment of whether or not there's even a chemical imbalance problem. There's no way to quantify and measure the chemical imbalance issue. And so what they do instead is say, how about this pill? You know, you, know, you hear on KNX, if you'd like to be part of an interesting research study, What they mean is we're going to sit down and we're going to throw some drugs at you and see if the issues change your behavior. And if it changes your behavior, it works. And that must be the chemical, because we can't figure it out for sure, that must be the chemical you're devoid of. And if you feel better, it works, problem solved. Except, a year later, you need a higher dosage. And the year after that, you need a higher dosage. Why? Because the heart is running unchecked, and the problem is not changing, the problem is growing. And so feelings then become the guide for truth. There's no authority. Secondly, there's no clear moral standard. With such divergent opinions about how to deal with this, uh, to deal with man come the same assorted differences about what standard men should live by. I mean, uh, why is it wrong if a person steals? Who are you to say that that's wrong? Why can't a man have as many wives as he wants? What's wrong with that? Who are you to say so that a man can't molest his children? Or a woman who could strip naked in the middle of the night and swim in 40-degree cold lake. Well, why, is that, why is that bizarre behavior? Who are you to define the, the standard of authority when there, there really is none? 
And so what they say is that the standard keeps, the line keeps moving because culture keeps shifting and this isn't culturally acceptable. And, and so you have just this bizarre interplay back and forth. Who defines the standard of morality in appropriate terms? Who says that behavior is abnormal? There's no standard. There's no answer. Every counselor will tell you a different thing. One counselor would say, hey, the, the standard of behavior is quite normal. Somebody else will say, that's totally out of whack. Psychology has not drawn the moral line. It has no clear moral goal. And that's the key. If you don't have a moral goal, you can never reach it. If you don't know what normality is, you're making, up it, as, making it up as you go. You're never going to progress people to it. Game for nothing, you hit it every time. Thirdly, there is no scientific evidence that verifies psychology. Now, because psychology is rooted in its deepest levels in Darwinian evolution, which is not proven to be a scientific fact, the conclusions of psychology are at best suspicious as to whether it's truly scientific. Let me give you another guy, Michael Gitlin, Associate Clinical Professor of Psychiatry at UCLA. He said in his Psychotherapist's Guide to Psychopharmacology, Despite the remarkable amount of research over the last 25 years, however, there is still no definitive biological explanation for any psychiatric disorder. He goes on to say, despite over 20 years of energetic effort, no biological hypothesis has yet marshaled enough supporting evidence to definitively explain any psychiatric disorder. You know what he's saying, guys? And he's talking to, to the guys within his own discipline. We don't know what we're doing. We've, we've, we've given it a great shot but we're no further along. All they know is that if they give a person a certain chemical and it seems to reduce or eliminate the problem, then, then that's the issue. So instead of solving the problem, they're suppressing it. Worse yet, here's, a, here's another problem. There's no guilt. There is no guilt. If you are what you are because of some haywire thing in your brain... If you are what you are because your circumstances that have been dealt to you, parentheses, by a sovereign God, they're so traumatic that of course you would respond the way that you would. I mean, who, who can hold you responsible if there's a medical malfunction in your brain? And so there is a whole class of reclassification of sin by secular psychologists, and hopefully now I think you see why. Uh, sin has become a syndrome. Disease has replaced depravity. Carnality is now a chemical problem. Violence is because you're a victim. Children are now disobedient because they have oppositional defiant disorder. You know what that is? If your child throws a fit, doesn't want to do what you say, rebels against authority, and is possibly prone to do that, they have a chemical problem treated by psychotherapy and medication. So you need to get them in. So you can get them under control. Well, you and I know a different answer for that. The fear of man living for people's approval is now called codependency. Bipolar and depression have taken over despair and anxiety. Instead of feeling guilty, you need to feel good about yourself and have a good self-image. Disrespect is now called selective mutism. If, you have a pro- if your kids have a problem, if they talk at home and, and they're fine at home, but when they go in public, they're, they're quiet and you can't get them to say a word, that's well, because they have a chemical problem called selective mutism. Anger is now intermittent explosive disorder. It's, it's, it's a description of about a five-hour period of rage uh, where there's this uncontrollable violence that is usually followed by about three hours of shame and remorse. 
Gambling, drunkenness, and lust is now an addiction. Humility has been relabeled low self-esteem. The pastor and the theologian have been replaced by the psychiatrist and the therapist. And so the list goes. Consider antisocial personality disorder for a second. You can go to the website, by the way, and find the whole list of all the supposed psychiatric disorders and walk through and just take your Bible and common sense and ask, is this true? Antisocial personality disorder. Maybe you're suffering. This order is defined by an ongoing disregard of the rights of others. Since the age of about 15 years, some examples of this disregard are reckless disregard for the safety of themselves or others, failure to conform to social norms with respect to lawful behaviors, deceitfulness, such as repeated lying or deceit for personal profit or pleasure, and lack of remorse for actions that hurt other people in any way. Maybe you have it. The most recent and most sad disorder to come out it was featured in Biography Magazine uh, two months ago, is called dysthymia, also known as chronic discontent. If you're discontent in your life, if you don't find fulfillment or happiness, you need psychotherapy. If you're frustrated, stressed, irritated, discouraged, cynical, overwhelmed, or fed up, psychologist Alan Down prescribes a combination of psychotherapy and medication to bring you out of it. The Bible prescribes repentance so uh, with all of that, with, with the table set, what does the Bible say? I mean, that's pragmatically a common sense. I mean, you look at the movement, and it's a house divided, but what does the Word of God say? I mean, what should you think as a Christian? Is Christianity at all compatible with psychology? You as a believer who have all that you need for life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him, do you need psychology? Does God need a psychiatrist in order to bring his people to true spiritual health? Let me give you some analysis. First, biblically speaking, secular man does not have the ability to understand and make sense of his world. I, I want to be careful that you understand that. Secular man, the man who does not know God, does not have the interpretive apparatus to make sense of of his world. He doesn't. He can understand his soul. He can understand his behaviors. The world in which he lives is not the world as he sees it because it doesn't factor God into the equation. His worldview guides him into a different answer. He explains world and its history and his experiences through the lens he looks through. And the lens is tainted with what? With sin. Sin is the distorting element. Sin has eclipsed the mind of the unbeliever so that the realm of objectivity and reality is darkened to him. His ability to remain neutral as an observer, to describe to you your behavior, is unavailable. His faculties are all contaminated. Listen to Psalm 16:8, David's heart. He says, I have set the Lord continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. In other words, my life is stable because I constantly look through the lens of Scripture through the Lord at my life. I look at all of life through the perspective of God. I set Him always before me. And I interpret everything I see through Him. That's how He was able in Psalm 16 to remain unshaken in tumultuous situations. In other words, He sought to view all of life through God's perspective. Consider also Romans 8. Verse 7 and 8, it says, The mindset on the flesh, which would be unbelievers, is hostile toward God. 
For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. What that means is there's not some neutral level that that an unbeliever can come to where he can objectively assess what he finds in you. He doesn't have the desire to do it, and he doesn't have the ability to do it. He is both unwilling and unable to think about divine truth or submit to it. Consider Solomon, the wisest man to ever live. Remember the book of Ecclesiastes? Turn there. Remember Ecclesiastes was after a life of crash and burn. The wisest man who ever lived gets himself dusted off and writes a letter to us that tells us how to navigate through the difficulties of a fallen world. What do you do when the uh, tragedies and the turmoils around you uh, uh, seek to ensnare you or, or suppress you? Ecclesiastes chapter 12, at the end of his life of calamity, he says there's one thing you need to know. When it's all said and done, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13, the conclusion is this. When all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments. Because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, every behavior to judgment. Everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. The bottom line, when you get down to sum it up, fear God and keep his commandments. That's the issue. In other words, coming to the place where you see God as the authority, you place yourself under that authority in a way that promotes your obedience. The Old Testament, one of the most fundamental teachings about life is Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is what? It's the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of knowledge, and fools despise wisdom and instruction. And you say, why do I go there? Simply this. If you want to arrive at wisdom, if you want to come to knowledge, where must you start? The fear of God. You have to start with the fear of God. If you don't begin with the fear of God, you never arrive at wisdom. But in psychology, the equation is differently. We're going to start as people who don't fear God to try to arrive at wise conclusions about why we do what we do. Solomon says, you try to find answers apart from the fear of God, you're a fool. You're a fool. This would include your assessment of yourself. This would include your motives, your behaviors, your ambitions, etc., So secular man doesn't have the ability to make sense of what he finds in the world. He can't interpret it. His instruments are all broken. Secondly, the word of God must interpret all of life. The word of God must interpret all of life because it alone claims to be the source of sufficiency, the sole guide for understanding, especially the issues. And this is the key. And and I know know what questions you're thinking, so I'm going to come to those. But especially the issues where psychology claims to be the authority, where psychology claims to have the answers in direct contradiction to where the Bible claims to have answers. The word of God must interpret life. And the question is not whether truth about God and man can be recognized and and demonstrated factually. The issue is whether those study and have the spiritual capacity to, to, to discern what they discover. They don't have the ability to interpret the truth because they don't have the scripture And it's not as though, as I said earlier, they have some neutral plane of objectivity that they can sit on and set aside their sin and the presuppositions about God and come and examine things objectively. We don't even do that as Christians. We look at all of those data through the eyes of God, through the eyes of Scripture. 
It's the word of God that must open our understanding to interpret those things. I'll give you examples in a minute. Thirdly, if the starting points of the Bible and psychology differ, then their conclusions will differ. If you begin with the fear of God or the rejection of God, that is going to determine the outcome of your conclusion and the application of your conclusion. And the problem here is that psychology was spawned by ungodly men whose religious convictions about God and the Bible have motivated their practices. And people just come and bring those to modern-day offices. For example, secularist Sigmund Freud said, when a man is freed of religion, he has a better chance to live a normal and wholesome life. Now, does that sound like somebody who's objectively taking the facts, looking at them, and trying to give some assessment about No! This is sin alive in the heart of a philosopher. Fourth, the Bible forbids seeking spiritual counsel from other sources than God. And this is where I want to land. The Bible forbids seeking other spiritual counsel from sources other than God. Now, we're not talking about trying to figure out why is it that people are more likely to wash their hands in public than when they're in private after they're going to the bathroom. I mean, we're not trying to figure that kind of stuff out, okay? We're talking about issues where the Bible claims to be sufficient and psychology claims to be the answers, values and beliefs and motives and behaviors. And it's wise and fair, isn't it, to ask the question at the beginning, is it wise to take counsel about life's issues from one whose view of life is skewed and whose heart and life is ungodly? Turn to Psalm 1. Psalm chapter 1. The first psalm in the Bible, from Old Testament to New Testament, give us direction here. Psalm chapter 1. David gives us a directive. How blessed is the man, key in here, who does not walk, what? In the counsel of the wicked. You don't walk in the counsel of the wicked. You want to know what it's like to have happiness, blessedness? You want to know what it's like to be full? Don't walk in the counsel of the wicked. Don't take the counsel that the wicked give you and walk in it. Don't apply that to your life. Don't stand in the path of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. There are millions, beloved, who are sitting on the couch of scoffers, getting counsel for how to live their life in direct disobedience to this command. The prohibition here is not to live your life according to the counsel that wicked men give you because your life then will match their wickedness. Now, you're probably asking this question. Are you saying that diabetes and cancer and things like that, I mean, should I have only Christian doctors? Should, are you saying that a, that a non-Christian doctor shouldn't do a surgery on me because he's bent in his wickedness and his depravity? no. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is there has to be a clear distinction between what is truly physiological and what is truly spiritual. And up to the 1800s, this realm that psychologists are claiming is scientific was only devoted to the religious and the philosophical and has yet to demonstrate itself as a scientific discipline. And so it still stands in the place where it's trying to evaluate a person's inner man and trying to prescribe solutions for changing permanently the inside of a man so that he lives a healthy life. 
I'm not talking about, uh, you know, um, I'm not saying that only a Christian geography and math teacher can help you. That's not what I mean. What we mean is here is where the Bible claims to be sufficient, it alone is the authority, no other. And it warns us against that. Every honest doctor will tell you that the way you can discern whether a person has a physiological condition or a spiritual or other condition is tissue damage. Tissue damage or tissue malfunction. Every single honest doctor on the planet will tell you that. And so if you're in a discipline where you can't point to something physiological, you can't bank on the authority of what they're saying if they're prescribing physiological solution to spiritual problems. I don't know about you, but if I went into the doctor and I sat down and said, you know, doc, I'm feeling really warm. My, my arm is hurting. Um, you know, I've had some, some pains, you know, localized in my chest. I, I'm just a little concerned. What should I do? And he says, lay down. And he pulls out a, a scalpel. So we're going to take a look and, and go see. We're going we're gonna to do some open heart surgery right now. It's urgent. Wait, wait, wait. Time out, Tiger. I'm not sure if I want you cutting me open. I want you to do some more objective tests first. You know, I, I ate a burrito last night. Could be, maybe. Uh, I need something more verifiable to go on than a hunch. If you're going to put my life in that much of an altered state. David says... The man who's blessed, verse 2, is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord. So David makes a contrast. There is the law of God, the law of the Lord, and there is the wicked counsel. The word of God is what's able to keep us from those permeating influences and effects. Paul in the New Testament, Colossians chapter 2, turn there. Colossians chapter 2 warned us and exhorted us about the need to take seriously those attempts in a, of erroneous teaching, the, the pervasive leaven that would want to lead us away from the truth by trying to provide answers for our problems. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. Paul says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the traditions of men. Watch out for men who bring you traditions or philosophy according to the elementary principles of the world rather than according to Christ. Watch out for them. Now, he, watch, watch the next phrase, verse 9. Why? For in him, that is in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete. In other words, don't let somebody come and undermine and cut the legs out of Christ. Don't let anybody come to you and offer you some wisdom, whether it be worldly, whether it be elementary principles of the world or philosophy or empty deception. Don't let anybody kidnap your soul. Nobody. And you'll know them if they diminish Christ's person and work and they tell you that Christ is not enough. These people are trying to kidnap your soul. So, the point is, is that error doesn't sanctify, and it can't lead a man to God. The wisdom offered by the world competes with the wisdom of God, and the two cannot be joined, or they will be unequally yoked. Freud again, no, our science is no illusion, but an illusion it would be to suppose that what science cannot give us, we can get elsewhere. Man's deceived. 
Let me take you to the most definitive text in the New Testament on this issue. James chapter 3. James chapter 3. James makes several points here in this text. In James chapter 3, starting in verse 13. Now this is the, this is the watershed text. Who among you is wise in understanding? You want to know wisdom? Next phrase, let him show his wisdom and understanding by his behavior, his good behavior, his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. You want to know why a person does what he does? You want to know his behavior? Look at the source of wisdom that he walks by. You want to know if you're wise? Check out your behavior. So I I point that out to show you there is a correlation between the wisdom you listen to and the behavior in your life. Verse 14, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, internal man, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom that produces this behavior is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. James makes several points here, four points really. First, there are two and only two different operating ideologies in the world, and they are at odds with one another. Secondly, the reason that you do what you do is because of the wisdom you listen to and heed whichever ideology you embrace. Third, the influences behind each ideology are either good or evil, either sin or righteousness. There is no neutral ground. There is no neutral plane you can arrive to. It's one or the other. You can't have both. On the other hand, he says there is a kind of wisdom that proceeds, or produces, I should say, the kinds of sinful behavior that would receive actually a chemical uh, prescription from A psychiatrist. You look at those different things, you're having problems with your purity, you're having problems uh, with relationships between people, you're having problems with with having this internal uh, hostility towards somebody else, you're striving with your ambition to to dominate other people, you've got a chemical problem. No, verse 14, James says you have a problem where? In your heart. In your heart. And moreover, the things for which you would be receiving a chemical diagnosis come from one of three different places. Either it's earthly as opposed to heavenly. It's natural as opposed to spiritual. Or it's demonic. Demonic. What that means is there are two competing ideologies in the world. One is from heaven and one is from hell. And so the one that doesn't produce in your life true internal heart change is from hell. And so James says the core of the problem is not your mind or your brain. It's not your synapses that aren't firing right. It's your heart. It's the condition of your heart. Why do you have ambition? Why do you have these issues? It's because of your heart. Everyone is religious and they are motivated by their behaviors depending on their choice of wisdom. And so psychology as a discipline attempts to implement religious principles into our culture that are opposed to true biblical Christianity. But there's a fifth point I'd like to analyze psychology with. 
That's this. Psychology attacks every major doctrine of the Bible. It attacks the Bible for starters. The Bible which claims to be the all-sufficient authoritative guide to lead you into everything that God would have you do and be relevant in every culture, sufficient for all matters of life and godliness, all that you need. Carl Rogers says this, Experience is, for me, the highest authority. The touchstone of validity is my own experience. No other person's ideas and none of my own ideas are as authoritative as my experience. It is to experience that I must return again and again to discover a closer approximation to truth as it is in the process of becoming in me. Truth is evolving. He went on to say, it is to my experience that I must return again and again, and neither God nor man can take precedence over my own direct experience. Whoa. These are the progenitors of psychology. In other words, your reasoning, your interpretation of experiences, everything that has any authority is only your experience in the way that you see it. The bottom line is that this psychology assaults the inspiration, sufficiency, and authority of Scripture. Secondly, it attacks the doctrine of God. Sigmund Freud again. At the bottom, God is nothing more than an exalted father. It would be very nice if there were a God who created the world and was a benevolent providence, and if there were a moral order in the universe and an afterlife, but it is a very striking fact that all this is exactly as we are bound to wish it to be. In other words, it would be nice if God existed. That would be great. I'd love a world where God existed, where there was purpose and order. But according to Freud, it's just merely the inflammation of the wishbone. Psychology denies the existence of the one true God. It attacks man's purpose. By implication, if there's no creator and there's no design, you have no purpose. What are you here for? Yourself. Survival of the fittest. Your life is the result of, I mean, how does this bless you? I want to welcome you this morning. Um, God bless you. Uh, There is no God. Um, uh, You know, your purpose in life, you you came out of nowhere and you're going to nowhere. When this is over, it's done, so you better make the most out of it you can. But problem is, you got suppressed stuff in reality that's keeping you from it. Have a great day. The purpose of man's existence in an evolutionary worldview is to perpetuate existence. And the problems you face are a barrier to that end. Self-preservation, self-gratification become the pursuit of man instead of the biblical purpose for man to be fulfilled in glorifying God. And so psychology perverts the purpose of man. It attacks the doctrine of sin. In answering the questions posed as to why does man do what he does, psychologists have classified behavior into neutral categories which take away your guilt. B.F. Skinner, for example, taught that because a man behaves not on the basis of his moral nature with choices, but based on his external and shaping influences, he can be made, quote, perfect. If just the right forces are exerted upon him. Dr. Wayne Dyer, psychologist, has written about the damaging effects of neurotic, quote, God-ordained guilt for sin. He says guilt zones must be exterminated, spray cleaned, and sterilized forever. You feel guilty? Wrong. Get that guilt out of you. Not by repenting. And so psychology really dismisses the problem of sin and guilt. It attacks the person and work of Christ. Logically, I mean, the inevitable conclusion is if if you're not responsible for your sin, and there is no God to whom you give an account, then there is no need for a what? There's no need for a savior. You don't need a savior. 
Instead of deliverance from sin and guilt and wrath, people are told that they need to have their love cups filled. To remove the burdens of suppressed memories or subconscious trauma. Instead of being a substitutionary sacrifice for the sins of men, Jesus then, to Christian psychologists, becomes the ultimate psychotherapist. Instead of the need for internal transformation by the regenerating work of the Spirit, psychology offers the modification of an environment or your behavior on the basis of medication. Now, biblically speaking, the problem of man is Jeremiah 17.9. The heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately wicked. And the reason man sins is because his heart is wicked. Jesus said in Mark chapter 7, verse 20, That which proceeds out of the man is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. It terrorizes human behavior. It attacks the doctrine of the church. Instead of going to a pastor who has the word, who can wield the word to help you with life's issues, you go to a therapist. But Paul says in Romans 15, You, my brethren, are I am convinced that you are full of goodness, filled with knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. That means to help one another deal with life's issues. The body is sufficient for that. And so what that means is every single one of you here, a child of God, with the word of God, is able to do whatever it takes to lead somebody else into the will of God. But psychology discards that. They even discard the doctrine of demons and angels. Freud said demons do not exist any more than gods do, being only the products of psychic activity. I find that interesting that all false teaching comes from one place, First Timothy 4, from the doctrines of demons. And even that is dismissed. So what's our position on psychology? What is our stand Listen carefully. Psychology is the quarrel with the maker of man's soul. It is an arrogant, rebellious insurrection against the truth of Scripture. It is a religion, not a science, motivated by an objective, not motivated, I should say, by an objective desire to help people deal with life's issues. It is the vain attempt to silence a guilty conscience terrorized by the thought of God. It is a false religion, false religion forged in the gates of hell from ancient times and now gathers its dangers around the people of this world with an agenda to lead people into darkness and away from biblical Christianity. And, and Christians cannot, cannot bring this into and mingle it with biblical Christianity. I mean, psychology doesn't only dilute Christianity, it poisons it. One drop of poison is enough to make a pure glass of water poison. And so for then the Christian to import wisdom, the wisdom of the world into his or her life through whatever vehicle, including psychology, is a sin. It is to let a diseased man with the plague breathe a deadly virus into your soul. Now, I realize this might be new to many of you. I know that many of you at some point, perhaps even now, have gone to a psychologist or a psychiatrist. I want you to know that we're here to bring the word of God to bear to those issues. We want to help you find lasting solutions. And I know that many of you may have a lot of questions after this. Jack's back next week. (laughs) We're going to endeavor to answer your questions and and shepherd your thinking through this time. It's it's a difficult time. And we, we have to speak this way because this is a danger that's threatening our church. 
And there's going to be some of you certainly who disagree with me and disagree with our leadership and our position. This was what I would ask you to do. I would ask you prayerfully, with your heart open, with your Bible open, to sit down and when the series is over, to talk. Um, we're probably going to try to do a Q&A, um, a sort of a panel Q&A discussion, maybe on a Sunday night, to try to address maybe specific questions you have. You may have, what about this, what about this? We want to talk about those things. So wait till the series is done and hear us out. But realize this is our stand. And we can't apologize for the truth. We are guardians of the truth. And we're guardians of your souls. Father, help us to think and deal rightly with this issue, the issue of psychology. Lord, today has been a much different day than we usually spend in your word. And from time to time, you call us to, as watchmen, stand up and to address those issues that we face and that we confront And I beg of you, Lord, that you will give each one of us the wisdom and the discernment that we need. And moreover, you would guide us into your word so that in it we might find all the answers, everything that we need for life and godliness. Lord, we love you and we commit ourselves to you for Christ's sake. Amen.